There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his, his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her, two without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the fields, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But, no, but Naomi, said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may be, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law sister has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to, so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we continue, I invite you to please join with me in prayer. Father, we again remember before you uh, that 
that this is your word and it is given to us for our good. And that as we uh, sit and listen, it is not just words that we hear, but actually you are speaking to us. And so again, we ask, Lord, would you please enable us to hear um, that we might be made, uh, made new, that we might be shaped, that we might more deeply than ever trust in your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to uh, talk with you about the idea of conviction about the fact that God loves us. Are you convinced at, at kind of an experiential level that God loves you? It's not just an academic question. Um, one of my favorite theologians, a man by the name of John Calvin, said that Christian faith, here's how he defines it, is having a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. In other words, at the very heart of Christianity is a conviction that we are loved by God. And that's because everything really flows from this. Do we want to grow in our life of prayer, it must begin with us knowing that we have a God who loves and welcomes us. Do we seek to be more obedient? We grow in obedience as we know that the God who calls us to do these things loves us. Do we want to love? Scripture says we love because God first loves us. Our Christian faith at its very heart is a conviction that God loves us. So what happens when everything in your life seems to indicate that God could not possibly love you? That's the question that we find in the book of Ruth through the figure of Naomi. It's the question we'll be considering this morning. So to understand the book of Ruth, especially the beginning, it's, you need to recognize that those first five verses are are the prologue of this larger story. You know how some of the best stories have a prologue. So Star Wars, you know, at the very beginning, there's always those words scrawling up into outer space. Or maybe even more to the point, if you've seen the movie Up, you know, one of the great Pixar movies, in the first 10 minutes, it tells the story of a kid going all the way into old age, and that's when the story starts after you get through those first 10 minutes of this guy who's grieving in his, in his old age. Well, that's what happens here, those first five verses are the prologue that set the stage for what the book of Ruth is ultimately going to be about. And it starts with a happy couple, uh, Elimelech and Naomi, who have two boys who seem strong and healthy, Malin and Killian. Um, if, you're, if you need an image of a family, just think, you know, the Vanderveens, two boys, <laughs> father and, and wife, that's them. And so this happy family, but they are faced with an unhappy decision. They live right now in Bethlehem which, by the way, literally means the house of bread. They are in the house of bread in God's country, God's promised land, and yet there isn't enough bread. It says there's famine. And so they have to decide, do we leave our home? Do we leave God's promised land to go somewhere else, to go to Moab so we can have food? Now, it's important to understand that this decision for them wasn't just a food decision. This is a faith decision because... From the outset, God had made a promise with his people, 
where he said, I will give you this land, I will provide for you, I will care for you in this land, and the people said, we promise to trust in you, God, and that you will be our God and to let you provide for us. And so being in the land was an expression of that faith. And so to leave that land was an expression of an abandonment of that faith. And some ways to choose to leave their home was kind of if today, if you have friends who say, you know, I just stopped going to church, I stopped praying, because, you know, this whole thing just kind of has stopped working for me. That's essentially what the decision to leave would be. And so that's the decision they're faced with. They have made this commitment to God. We will trust in you. We will stay in your land. And yet, there's famine and you can, you can understand if you're a parent, the challenge, I mean, hunger causes you to do scary things, but even more, your kids needing food. What are you going to do? And, and we know what they do. They, they do leave and go to Moab to get food, and they get food. They settle down. It says they're going to be there for 10 years. They find a home. They find a life. Things seem to be going okay until... Tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the father, the husband, he dies. And so Naomi and the kids grieve, but life has to keep continuing. Thankfully, by this point, Malin and Killian are, are men. They're able to work the fields. They can move forward. There's, there's still hope. And, and Malin and Killian get married, and there's something bittersweet about this for Naomi because they're two wonderful daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and, and yet they're Moabites. They, they don't actually have the faith of their family. They don't believe in the one true God, but what can you expect? You're in Moab. And at least Naomi has the, this prospect of the moment that she will become a grandmother before her. But that moment never comes. We don't know the details, but at some point, Ruth, sorry, at some point, Naomi gets word that Malin, her, her beautiful boy, has died. And you can just imagine how, how horrific that must be, her just remembering, this was the one that I held when he was crying to help him go to sleep. Um, I walked with him through the mood swings in adolescence. I have seen him become a man. I know the dreams I have for him, and and they are no more. It is a horrible thing for a parent to bury their child. And I'm not sure how Naomi recovered from that. Maybe she never did, because even as she was grieving, even as she was just overwhelmed, then more news came that Killian had died as well. And suddenly, this woman is completely empty empty of her family, empty of any emotion, empty of hope. Let me ask you, in that situation, how does that affect your relationship with God? Is it even possible in that moment to believe that God loves you? And this is how really our story begins. That's the prologue that begins. And as our story begins, there is Naomi broken and empty. 
And somehow in the midst of her grief, she has heard word, even while she's in Moab, that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is no longer a place of famine, that God has shown mercy, is bringing food. And so she has a decision. She could just stay there, but there's nothing there for her in Moab except to die, which probably felt like a real possibility for her. But she decides that it's better for her to go to her hometown, to be at least amongst people who might have known her and maybe who would be generous to her as she needs food. So she gathers her things, she gets up, but there's one, there's one thing that she still has to deal with, one kind of loose end that she has to tie. See, in that day and age, technically, when someone married, they would join the family of the husband. So when Ruth and Orpah made vows to Malin and Killian, they were binding themselves through their promise to this new family. In essence, Ruth and Orpah were saying, now we become your daughters. And what that means now is that as Naomi is leaving, well, Ruth and Orpah are obligated to go with her as well. But this is the loose end that Naomi wants to tie up. It says, as she sets out, verse 8, she says to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. In other words, go, let's pretend this never happened. I know you've made vows. I know technically I'm now your mother-in-law, but let's just leave that alone so that you can go back to your previous mother and actually live your life. And as she explains to them, as she tries to convince them why, it gives us insight into how Naomi is feeling, where she is at. The, the first one's a fairly practical reason. She says, look, I have no more kids. There are no more sons, not even in my womb. I'm not going to be married anytime soon. If you go with me, you will never be married again. You will always be poor. You will always be begging. So why would you go with me? But there's another reason that even more deeply gives us insight into where Naomi is in the moment. Do you notice? When she speaks of her hope for them in verse 9, it says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's, she's bringing a blessing. May God bless you as you go elsewhere. And then verse 13, do you see at the very end where it says, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do you, do you hear what she's saying? If you want the Lord's blessing, it's not with me. Right now, there is hopelessness for me. There is curses upon me. Go, because if you need to be blessed, you must stay away from me. She, she kind of continues that further on. When, when we see her later on after this conversation with Orpah and Ruth, as she eventually comes to her hometown, she tells them that the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And specifically, she says, the Lord has testified against me. In other words, she's saying, my life is miserable, and it's my fault. I left God, and so God has decided to do these things for me. God is against me. God has cursed me. I asked at the very beginning, how do we know, how can we experience the reality of the conviction that God loves us? Let me ask you this question. When are you most convinced that God loves you? When do you feel it most clearly? 
I think one of the common answers that we sometimes will have is, is when we are doing something that we know is pleasing to God, there's a sense that we can feel His love. Like maybe when we're on a missions trip and, and what we're doing we know is good and we kind of just sense God's smile upon us. Or maybe sometimes when we're at church and we're singing and praying and we, we feel the reality of God's love, even sometimes if we're working in a way that we know is honoring to Him, you know, in Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When we do something we know is pleasing to God, we experience His love. And sometimes it's also when we experience some really good thing. Maybe, maybe we've been praying for someone to be healed, and then they're healed, and we go, wow, God heard my prayer. He really loves me. Or we experience some unexpected gift, and we see the smile of God. When we experience good things, we feel God's love sometimes. But what happens when neither of those are true? What happens when you know you have, you have failed God, that you have turned your back on Him? What happens when terrible things are happening to you? Can you even in any way taste the love of God in that moment? What do you do when you are like Naomi? she has concluded that, that there is no hope for her. It's not just that if you look at just the facts, she has no husband, she has no sons, she has no future source of income. That would be bad enough, but she's saying it's not just that. It's actually that God is against me. She feels like she is drowning, and it's not just that God isn't holding out his hand to rescue her. She feels like God is pushing her head under the water until she dies. And so she says, why would you stay with me? I am radioactive. I am toxic. There is no reason to go with me. You will experience the curse of God. There is no reason, she thinks, because there's one thing that Naomi doesn't understand, and this lies at the heart of the passage. She doesn't recognize that there is a force, there is a power that she's completely unaware of. It's something we would call chesed. Now, that's a Hebrew word. I know it's not familiar to many of us, but it's a word that's repeated throughout Ruth. It's, it's at the very core of this book. The word chesed, oftentimes in, um, in translations, is translated as kindness, which kind of gets there, but it's more than that. It's, it's the idea of making a promise to love and sticking with it no matter what. It's the idea of deep, unswerving loyalty. And it is something that is at the very heart of this universe. And yet it's something, as we'll see, that Naomi completely doesn't recognize the possibility of. So she tells Orpah and she tells Ruth, it's time for you to leave. There is, there is no reason for you to stay with me. And to their credit, do you notice how at first they, they resist this? After, after she prays for them and says, leave, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. None of what Naomi says to them is news. They've done the math. They, they're not surprised when she says, hey, we don't, I don't have any more sons. She knows, they know that. They know that they are staring at a future with no clear reason for hope. And yet both of them, Ruth and Orpah, know that this was what came with the territory when they made these promises that when they made their commitments to Malin and Killian, they made their commitments to bind themselves to this family. And so they will continue with her. 
But then Naomi keeps going, and it's clear that this is not just a polite out that she's giving, that she won't take no for an answer. She keeps pushing, and she keeps pushing, and by doing so, she really makes it clear, you do not have to keep these commitments. I am releasing you from this. And at that moment where it's no longer obligation, where there is truly this sense that she has a freedom to choose, Orpah does exactly what Naomi anticipates. Orpah grieves. She would have stayed with Naomi if Naomi hadn't done this, but if she has the choice between this or seeing a life with a future, well, it makes sense what she'll choose. And so she, she kisses Naomi goodbye, weeping, and she walks away. But Ruth, Ruth clings to her. You know, I was uh, thinking, and I realized that in all of the, the great literature that we have, there is one figure probably more than any in our literature that I feel like is similar to Ruth, that, that is comparable to Ruth, and that is the great figure Horton the Elephant. Perhaps you know the Dr. Seuss uh, book, Horton Hatches an Egg. Um, if you don't, uh, it's, it's a story where there's this lazy bird, Maisie, who is, has an egg but really would rather kind of be let out of her duties of sitting on it and finds this elephant and asks, hey, could I take a break? Could you be willing to sit on the egg for me? Um, I'll hurry right back while I'll never be missed. Very well, said the elephant, since you insist. You want a vacation, go fly off and take it. I'll sit on your egg and I'll try not to break it. I'll stay and be faithful. I mean what I say. Toodaloo, sang out Maisie and fluttered away. So if you know the story, what does Horton do? He, he sat all the day and he kept the egg warm and he sat all the night through a terrible storm. It poured and it lightened, it thundered, it rumbled. This isn't much fun, the poor elephant grumbled. I wish she'd come back because I'm cold and I'm wet. I hope that that Maisie bird doesn't forget. Meanwhile, Maisie is on the beach thinking that she is never coming back. So Horton kept sitting there day after day and soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away and then came the winter, the snow and the sleet and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said, with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. If you know the story, you know that things get worse. The animals come out and mock Horton. And then hunters come and he has to stay there even as the hunters are pointing guns at him. And then he's captured and he's, and he's put in a circus. But no matter what, he stays on that egg because he has meant what he said and he said what he meant because he'll be faithful 100%. And that really is the very heart of what we see in Ruth. She, she has made a promise it says that Ruth clings to Naomi, and when Naomi keeps speaking, she says, do not tell me to leave. And that, that language of clinging and leaving is, is very intentionally meant to remind us of Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, it says that, that when marriage happens between a man and a woman, that there is a leaving of the family, and there's a cleaving to each other, implying that there is a new family connection that is born. And what Ruth is saying is, don't, don't tell me to leave. Don't tell me to break this commitment. I have made my commitments to you. I am clinging to you. 
I have said what I said and I mean it and I'm not going to change. And if, and if there's any doubt about what her attitude is, she says, this is the most beautiful part of this passage, do not urge me to leave or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And if there's even any doubt, she actually calls a curse upon herself. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Have you ever um, seen, there's a meme, you know, find someone who loves you like, have you seen something like this before? Like, there's all sorts of ones on the internet, like, find someone who loves you like Homer loves donuts. Or, or find someone who loves you like Kanye loves Kanye. There's, you know, like, there's all sorts of ones like that. And uh, there's something about this passage where it's basically, find someone who loves you like Ruth loves Naomi. Because there's something absolutely beautiful about this, isn't there? She, she has bound herself. This is, this is what I mean by chesed. She has made this commitment, and it doesn't matter that there is no future for her in this. That's, that's not how she's making the decision. She has said, I will be with you, and that means she is going to love her no matter what. It is a beautiful thing. I mean, have you ever experienced a love like that, where you know this person is with you, it doesn't matter if you fail them at times, it doesn't matter if it gets hard, they will be with you. There is something amazing about that. And yet, what's striking is how Naomi responds. Do you notice this? And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Really? I mean, there's not even a, a gratitude. I mean, this was just the most amazing speech, one of the most amazing speeches in the Bible, and you kind of get the sense that Naomi kind of rolls her eyes and says, okay, it's your funeral. I, I, I suspect part of this is just the fact that Naomi right now is just so emotionally flatlined that she cannot see it, right? There's a huge part of the grief here. But I think there's another element as well, and that is that, that Naomi does not have the capacity yet to understand this kind of commitment. I mean, think about her own life. When she had that decision 10 years ago where it was between sticking with the promises she made to God and doing what was practical. Well, you've got to do what's practical. I mean, you need the food. And now her daughters are facing the same decision. You have this promise, but then there's also the practical. You need to do what is practical. You need to find a husband. She doesn't understand that there is another choice. She doesn't understand that it's possible not to be bound by a present situation, but to be bound by promises that transcend the present situation. It is a massive blind spot. And the blind spot that she has doesn't just extend towards how Ruth treats her. There is this somewhat jarring moment. I wonder if you picked it up at the end. Whereas she comes back and these people who haven't seen her for a decade are like, is this possibly Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because my life is bitter. And, and notice kind of the, the summary that she gives, like the, the status update in verse 21. I went away full, 
and the Lord has brought me back empty. Does that sound right to you? In case we miss the blind spot, notice verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. God has not brought her back empty. God has brought her back grieving. There is some, some incredibly difficult stuff, but we've just seen something that shows that Naomi isn't seeing things clearly. And what we're being invited to see in a very subtle way is to recognize that if this is Naomi's blind spot so she doesn't understand what God is doing, maybe that blind spot is bigger than that. What we're supposed to understand, and we see this even more clearly once we've read through the entire book and we come back to this chapter, is that the way that Ruth is expressing that love of saying, I am with you no matter what because I have made that commitment, that is just a, a taste, just the simplest of expressions of the way that God is towards Naomi. God didn't abandon Naomi. Even when Naomi turned her back on God in Moab, God was still there lovingly bringing her back, preparing the way even with Ruth. Even as there were these terrible things that happened, that wasn't a sign that God had stopped caring. Somehow, God was involved even in that. Because it doesn't matter what Naomi feels like she experiences, there is a deeper reality than the experience that Naomi has, and that is that God has made a commitment that God has promised that he would be Naomi's God. And that promise is stronger than the laws of physics. It is more certain than the law of gravity. It is more reliable than the sun that rises every day. It is unmovable. I said that our passage invites us to say, find someone who loves you like Ruth loves Naomi. That's not exactly accurate. I actually think this passage is meant to help us to look back and say someone does love us like Ruth loves Naomi. That, that with the, the book of Ruth is meant to kind of pull our gaze back and to realize that even despite the strangeness of God's kindness, even despite the fact that there is real grief, even despite the fact that there is real faithlessness on our part, none of that changes the fact that when God makes a promise, it will never be broken. And he has promised and he has committed himself to loving you and to loving me. There is, um, I, I quoted John Calvin uh, earlier, that the, the, the quote actually goes further. It says that faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. How do we know that God loves us? Because of his promise. His promise that he expresses above all in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you not hear echoes of Jesus in Ruth? I mean, what is Jesus? When Jesus is coming into this world, he is saying, 
Where you are, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your guilt will be my guilt. Your punishment that you deserve will be my punishment. My God will be your God, and even death cannot separate us. Do you understand the level of commitment that God has for you? It doesn't change how it feels in the moment. It doesn't even change with our faithlessness. It is completely founded on the fact that God is a God of chesed, that our God has made a promise and it will never change, and His love for you will never change. There is um, uh, a somewhat tragic figure, uh, a hymn writer in the 18th century, a man by the name of William Cooper. We actually sing some of his hymns. And the reason he's such a tragic figure is he was in a time where there wasn't medication for depression, and he battled depression. It was dark. It was intense. Even after he became a Christian midway through his life, he still was tormented by it to the point that at times he would try to take his own life unsuccessfully. But he battled. With the help of friends, a man by the name of John Newton assisting him, he sought to battle because he realized that what he felt in his head wasn't the reality that actually grounded his life. And, and one hymn perfectly expresses this. God moves in a mysterious way is the name of the hymn. And there's this one verse that gets to the heart of what we're saying this morning. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Do you hear what he's saying? When we try to judge the Lord by our senses, by our experience, like Naomi does, we will get it wrong because they're not to be relied upon. Yes, there are times that things will be terrible. There are times that we're going to fail God, but judge not the Lord by those senses, but trust Him for His grace. Why? Because He has promised it. Trust Him because of His promises. Because in reality, while it looks like His providence, the way He is with us is frowning behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling, loving face. How do we know that? Because He has promised us this. Because He has shown us this in the face of Jesus. and Because He is a God who is faithful. I'd like to invite us, as we conclude, just to take some time and, and speak to this God. Perhaps some of us, like Naomi, have found ourselves feeling kind of distant from God. Uh, maybe we are, in reality, people who have kind of like stopped really leaning into the reality that God loves us. This would be a really good time to turn to God in prayer and to ask for His help and for His forgiveness. Would you please join with me in a time of silent confession, and then I'll lead us in confession in a moment's time. Our Father, we acknowledge that we uh, do not see you rightly. 
Lord, you have given us every reason to trust that your love is unshakable. You have shown the extent of your commitment through Jesus. And yet in our lives, we often demonstrate a lack of willingness to trust you. We become fearful about the things that seem practical and obvious to us in the moment. And so we sometimes rely on other things rather than resting in you, trusting in your word, and seeking to obey you. Father, we pray that you would forgive our faithlessness. We pray that you would cure us of this faithlessness, that your spirit would convince us more and more deeply of the reality of your unchanging faithful love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God.